in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer for HowStuffWorks.com, and today we're going to pick up where we left off in our last episode about the history of Samsung. So if you have not listened to the previous episode, you should probably go back and do that because I cover a lot of basic ground in that show. That includes an overview of the conditions in Korea leading up to the founding of Samsung, up to the stage where the company finally got into the electronics industry. Because Samsung, as it turns out, is a conglomeration of companies that do lots of different things. Electronics is just part of it. It's one of the more forward-facing components, especially outside of Korea. But it's just one element of the overall company. Also keep in mind, I'm talking about a Korean company with a lot of Korean names. So again, I apologize right up front for the numerous occasions I'm sure I will mispronounce Korean names. It is not through any lack of respect, but rather just a simple ignorance of the correct pronunciations for that language. I will do the best I can, however. It will get a little confusing because I'm going to talk a lot about the family who who is in charge of Samsung, and there are, are an awful lot of them. Uh, but we will get to that a bit later. Now, if you remember... I left off at the point when Samsung began to produce its first televisions and washing machines. That brings us up to the 1970s. So what was going on in Korea during that time? Well, you might remember in the last episode, I told you that Korea had come under the rule of a military leader, a general named Bak Jong-hee, or also sometimes spelled Park Chong-hee, uh, these names are anglicized versions of the Korean names. So often it's as close to an approximation of an anglicized pronunciation as we can get. So there are different spellings. Uh, Park Chong-hee is probably the most common, but I've also seen Bak Jong-hee. Same person, however. In fact, this is a good time for me to mention this. In the previous episode, I talked about a U.S.-backed leader, and I talked about him a lot. I said Lee Sung-man. Uh, and also mentioned a man named Singman Ri. Both of those names are actually the same person. Uh, see, in the Western world, we will say a person's uh, surname last, but in Asia, in many Asian cultures at any rate, you say the surname first. So Lee is the surname, Lee Sungman, or Singman Ri is the way that we often see it spelled, um, depending upon the source you're looking at. So I know it gets a little confusing, but these are the same people. They're just anglicized versions of the name. Anyway, let's go back to Park Chung-hee, the general, the person who had been in charge of South Korea. In 1972, he put the country under martial law and solidified his power in South Korea. They would hold elections, and Park Chung-hee would win those elections, uh, but there were a lot of people who essentially said that Park Chung-hee was really just a military dictator, just a military dictator is probably the wrong way of saying it, but he was a military dictator as opposed to a legally elected president, according to whom you ask. Meanwhile, at the same time, South Korea government officials were starting up talks with their counterparts in North Korea. And the two countries talked about wanting to reunite, to have a reunification of Korea. Uh, they said that there were a lot of requirements for that. One of the big ones was that they demanded no outside interference. They didn't want 
other entities coming into Korea to try and guide the process. Remember, Korea had been the subject of a lot of interference from the Soviet Union, from the United States of America. Before that, Japan and China. So they were really determined to do this themselves. But spoiler alert, that never really happened. In 1979, the head of the Korean intelligence service, Kim Jae-gyu, assassinated Park Chung-hee. So the head of the Korean version of the CIA assassinated the president of the country. After that, uh, there was a brief period of civilian rule where the prime minister assumed roles of the president uh, before another general, this one, a fellow by the name of General Chu Du Huan, seized power in 1980 and thus returned the country back to a dictatorship with token elections. And that would continue to be the case until the late 1980s. So Korea still had a tumultuous and often violent uh, power structure with people struggling to rule the country in different ways. Remember, even though, you know, you would say that that Park Chung-hee was a dictator, he was largely seen as someone who worked very hard to improve conditions in Korea. So he wasn't just exploiting his power, at least not in the view of many people. However, that being said, he also wasn't willing to have a transition of that power, and thus eventually he was assassinated. So very complicated political structure in Korea at the time. And despite all that political chaos, Samsung continued to do well. Uh, I'll talk more about how they did that a little bit later in this episode. The company had, for one thing, diversified quite a bit. It was getting into so many different industries. And it was playing a key component in the economy of South Korea. It was also creating Korean electronics with Korean parts. So they weren't importing elements and then building television sets and, and then selling them. They were making all of this stuff piece by piece. This helped establish Korea as one of what was called the Four Little Dragons. The Four Little Dragons were nations in East Asia that were very rapidly expanding economically and technologically, and they also included Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So these Asian countries were really quickly catching up to other nations like Japan and China. In 1977, Samsung began producing color televisions and exporting them to Panama. So this was a humble step toward Samsung becoming a global player in consumer electronics. Uh, before that, they had really been selling mainly to, to South Korea, but now they were expanding beyond that. And they were determined to really continue this level of success with all different types of electronics. Around the same time, Samsung began to produce other products in consumer electronics, including air conditioners, which I have covered in previous episodes of Tech Stuff, and the microwave. And there is also a classic episode of Tech Stuff about how the microwave works. So I'm not going to go into a full explanation, but because this episode is going to be a lot about corporate politics and actual politics because of the complicated uh, nature of Korean business, I thought... Why not go ahead and have at least a brief explanation on the science slash technology side of microwaves to really have this podcast earn the name of tech stuff? Because otherwise, we're just going to be talking about lots of economics, politics, and, and, and very complicated issues. 
So I'm going to give you some highlights of how microwave ovens work. So the radiation microwaves, uh, microwaves are in the electromagnetic spectrum in between infrared and radio waves. So they are longer waves than visible light. Microwave ovens produce microwaves at a frequency of 2.45 gigahertz. That's 2.45 billion wavelengths passing through a given point within a second. Now, certain stuff like fats, sugars, and water absorb waves that are at this 2.45 gigahertz frequency. As they absorb those waves, their atoms begin to get excited. That means they start to move around, and we call this heat, right? If atoms are moving around a lot, they uh, they are warm. They're giving off heat. They're giving off that form of energy. Likewise, if you apply heat to materials, you start to make their atoms move around more rapidly. So stuff like glass, ceramics, and plastics do not absorb waves at that frequency. So if you were to put a glass, like a glass uh, uh, container in a microwave and you turned it on and then you took the glass container out, assuming there was nothing on it to heat up to absorb those microwaves, it should not be really any significantly warmer to the touch. So that's why the food in a microwave will heat up, but the containers do not. Uh, metal, by the way, reflects microwaves, which is why the interior of most microwave ovens tends to be metallic. It's to reflect waves back into the oven in order to give the food a better chance at absorbing the waves and heating up and cooking in the process. This is also why we say that this this kind of food cooks from the inside out, uh, and you're not applying any heat to a surface, so you don't get that seared nature you would get if you were to, say, cook in a pan. One other thing, microwaves are not a form of ionizing radiation. That means that the waves don't carry enough energy to ionize atoms or molecules. Or to simplify it even further, it means microwaves don't pack enough of a punch to strip electrons away from atoms. Ionizing radiation includes stuff like ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, and gamma rays. And they do have enough energy to strip away electrons. And if you are exposed to that sort of radiation, you can suffer immediate and long-term damage as a result. So in a short-term, very brief exposure, you might suffer burns. Uh, in the case of ultraviolet radiation, it may take a little bit longer for you to actually suffer burns, but you know that's what sunburn is. In the long run, you're talking about bigger risks like cancer. So you want to really minimize your exposure to ionizing radiation. But happily, microwaves are not in that category nor are radio waves. It's the stuff in those those uh, uh, bigger wavelengths. They don't have the energy to do that, which is why you shouldn't have to worry about microwaves or radio waves or anything like that causing you any harm. They just don't have the energy to do that to you, whereas X-rays, gamma rays, that kind of stuff certainly has that sort of energy. Now, if you want to learn more about how microwaves work, including how they actually generate the microwave radiation in the first place, make sure you check out that classic Tech Stuff episode. It is titled, How Microwave Ovens Work. Yeah, we thought long and hard about that title. Anyway, that episode came out way back on March 1st, 2010. Let's get back to Samsung. In 1980, Samsung made another big acquisition. Remember, that's how this company was really growing. It was buying up other companies and getting involved in as many different industries as possible. 
This time, it was a telecommunications hardware company called Hanguk Jinja Tongsin. The number one product the company made was telephone switchboards. So they were starting to install more telephone infrastructure in Korea. Samsung soon expanded this to produce telephone and fax systems and, much later on, mobile phones. More on Samsung's mobile phones a bit later. Samsung expanded the operations of its electronics division into other nations, including the United Kingdom and the U.S., and the company had become an empire, and that's when it lost its emperor. It was 1987, and Lee Byung-chul, who was the man who founded Samsung when he was just 28 years old, passed away. Now, if you listen to our last episode, you know he had come from a wealthy family to begin with, But his company had elevated him and his family to truly wealthy status. Billionaires. Now, at the time of his death, he had one of the largest private collections of Korean art in all of the nation, which was opened up to the public after his passing. He had ten children, six daughters and four sons. There were also rumors of him having other children with other women, besides his wife in Korea, but that was... A rumor that the family is very secretive in the first place. So it's not like this was necessarily open information. Now, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to trace the very complicated history of Lee's family. I'll do this because in Korea, it is still traditional for families to keep control over businesses. So you can inherit a position of leadership in a company. The world of board of directors and choosing a CEO isn't the way things are done in Korea, at least not for a lot of companies. They follow a more traditional pathway. Uh, and that has caused some consternation, as it turns out. Now, the company split into four major business groups that eventually became their own individual companies. And at least according to the people running those companies, have nothing to do directly with one another anymore. Those include the Shinsegae group, or Shinsegae, I guess, group, I should say, which is mostly concerned with retail businesses, you know, department stores, that kind of thing. There's the CJ group, which includes businesses in food, chemical, entertainment industries. There's the Hansol group, which includes telecommunications and paper manufacturing industries. And then you have the Samsung group, which is pretty much everything else. So for right now... The only important thing you need to remember is that Lee Byung-chul, the founder of Samsung, died in 1987. And I'll try to focus exclusively on Samsung Electronics from here on out. Though I should mention the company as a whole consisted of 80 smaller companies at one point or another. 80. It was really a a conglomerate in the true sense of the word. It was a company filled with other companies. Many, in fact, most of those companies had nothing to do with consumer electronics. In the late 80s and early 90s, Samsung Electronics began opening manufacturing facilities in different parts of the world. The company was really making a name for itself, becoming a global player in the electronics space. This is pretty remarkable when you remember that companies like Sony had been in the electronics industry for decades, whereas Samsung really only began to dive into it in 1969-1970, so they had a lot of catching up to do. Samsung continued to expand the types of electronics it produced in the 1980s, like I said, with air conditioners and microwaves starting off, but by 1983, the company also began to get into the personal computer business. 
the very first Samsung computer was the SPC-1000, which came out in March 1983, and it was an 8-bit personal computer, which looked more like a giant electronic typewriter. It had 64 whole kilobytes of RAM and a 4 megahertz processor. Yeah, it was, for the time, it was, you know, it was good. But by today's standards, it is it is almost laughably underpowered. But we have Moore's Law to thank for that. The computer included a keyboard, a gamepad, external disk drives, and a TV-like monitor. And you would hook them all up, and then you'd be able to run stuff using the DOS operating system. Good times. In 1984, Samsung began to export VCRs to the United States. And I've covered VCRs in the past, including a deep dive on the format wars between VHS and Betamax. So I'm not going to really dive into it again here. You can listen to that classic episode of Tech Stuff if you like. And in 1986, Samsung created what was then the smallest videotape recorder, a 4mm videotape recorder. By the end of the 1980s, the company's products could be found on store shelves around the world. So they really made rapid progress from the mid-70s up to the late-80s. TVs were still leading the way, with Samsung's 20 millionth color television produced in 1989. The company developed its first mobile phone handset in 1991, though it would continue to work on the software side and the system side for another year. Uh, by 1992, Samsung had become the global leader in producing memory chips for electronics, so essentially RAM, and it fell only behind Intel for chip making in general. So Intel was the number one produ producer of uh, computer chips in 1992, and Samsung was number two. Again, a remarkable story for a company that had only recently started to get into electronics at all. Samsung pioneered work in building LCD displays in the mid-90s. And if you listen to my history of TV series, you know that the LCD panels really helped push televisions into a new era, allowing for a thinner form factor and flat-screen TVs. Samsung Electronics would end up making millions of dollars by licensing LCD panel technology to other companies. That became a chief source of revenue for the, for the Samsung Electronics division. Also, in 1992, Samsung began manufacturing in China and producing computer components such as RAM and hard disk drives with a 250 megabyte drive released that year, which again, sounds like nothing at all, 250 megabytes. I mean, you can get multi-gigs on a single flash drive these days, but back then it was pretty impressive. Samsung was also producing industrial robots at this time and managed to hit the 10 million products shipped by the end of 1992. And by products, I'm talking specifically robots. They produced 10 million industrial robots by the end of 1992. That's pretty incredible. Now, I've got a lot more to talk about with Samsung's electronics. But before I dive into the next section, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1993, Samsung's Advanced Institute of Technology also known as SAIT, or SAIT, developed the first digital versatile disc recorder, or DVD-R device. I guess. I mean, it couldn't have been the DVD we all know, because that didn't exist in 1993. That wouldn't be introduced until 1995 as a joint project between Sony and Panasonic. Honestly, 
I'm not really sure how Samsung's device fits into the history of DVDs and DVD-Rs in particular. I found the entry that the company first produced this first DVD-R in 1993 on Samsung's actual website. So this is according to the company itself, but that really strikes me as strange because as far as I know, the standard didn't really exist until 1995. So how do you produce a product two years before you've figured out the standard? It's possible that the entry is erroneous, but it did come from Samsung itself, so I thought I would include it. So, you know, grain of salt. It may very well be that they produced a DVD-R on an early version of what would become the standard in 95, but it just seems a bit early to me. Totally possible. Just something that I did not hear about when I was researching DVDs years ago. In the mid-90s, Samsung products began to number on the top sellers for certain categories like LCD screens. Samsung was definitely leading the way there. Meanwhile, Lee Kun-hee, who was a son of Lee Byung-chol, remember I said Lee Byung-chol had 10 children? Well, Lee Kun-hee was the third son. He would join the International Olympic Committee in the mid-90s. And that move is really important to note because it illustrates how critical a role Samsung was to the country and economy of Korea. And it also showed how critical the Lee family was and how strong their political influence was at the time. I have a lot more to say about that toward the end of this episode. In 94, Samsung unveiled the first four-power zoom camera. That came from Samsung Aeronautics. And in 1995, Samsung launched the Samsung Entertainment Group. That same year, SAIT you know, S-A-I-T, showed off a real-time MPEG-3 technology. And then there was a story from that same year, or around 95, I guess, that Lee Kun-hee, who, again, was the head of Samsung Electronics at that time, uh, and in fact still is today, ordered an entire inventory of smartphones destroyed because they apparently did not work properly. So the story was that uh, a... An early smartphone, really an internet-connected phone, it wasn't a smartphone the way we would imagine today, didn't work properly as it came out of production. And so rather than trying to fix the inventory, Lee Kun-hee just ordered them all to be burned. Samsung obviously didn't give up on the mobile business. And in fact, eventually the mobile business would become one of the most profitable divisions within the country, the year 2016 notwithstanding. And in 1996, the company produced what it claimed to be the fastest central processing unit chip, the fastest CPU. They called it the Alpha. In 1997, South Korea, along with countries like Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, were all caught in a terrible financial crisis. It began in Thailand with the collapse of Thailand's national currency, and that created a sort of ripple effect, and South Korea was caught in it. In fact, you could argue, caught some of the worst of it, with national debt surging as a result. Samsung was affected by this problem, just like other companies were, although Samsung was in good position to be able to weather the storm better than a lot of its competitors. According to the company's website, Samsung reduced the number of affiliated companies to 45, which is still an enormous number of affiliates, right? I mean, that's a big conglomerate. And keep in mind, this is family-owned businesses. The company ended up laying off about 50,000 employees and sold 10 business units. Uh, 
And one of the businesses Samsung sold off was its motor vehicle business. Or it used to be Samsung Motors, but the company sold off its interest to Renault at a big loss. Renault, uh, Samsung is mostly owned by Renault, like 80% ownership. And less than 20% of that ownership falls to Samsung. In the late 1990s, Samsung began to produce larger LCD screens and they ushered in a, a new era of large flat screen televisions and monitors. And they also started mass producing digital televisions. The semiconductor branch of the company was busy creating RAM and flash based chips. And in 1999, Samsung launched a smartphone. This would be a true Internet-capable mobile phone handset. But keep in mind, again, 1999 smartphones are not the same thing as the smartphones of today. You're still talking about pretty simple form factors, not the big touchscreens that we think about when we use uh, smartphones these days. Now, at the turn of the millennium, you know, around 2000, Samsung got into the HD TV game. High-definition television was still pretty young. I mean, it had been pioneered in the 90s, but 2000 was when consumers were starting to really look at HDTV for the first time in a serious way. And Samsung was able to secure a spot among giants in the industry like Panasonic and Sony. Samsung televisions remain one of the top brands on the market. So it's a real triumph for the company to get their products right next to these other big name brands, considering that they had a much, you know, much shorter history in the consumer electronics field. Through sheer willpower and lots of investments, they were able to do this. By 2001, the company's subsidiary Samsung Techwin would become the supplier for engine parts for the Airbus A380 and for the Boeing 787. So they also were doing a lot of business-to-business deals. In 2005, Samsung became the largest producer of LCD panels globally. The following year, 2006, Samsung and Sony formed a deal in which Samsung would supply Sony with LCD panels. And this partnership was almost 50-50. Almost. Samsung owned one share more than Sony did. And in 2011, Samsung would buy out Sony's stake in this partnership and take over the business completely. As for the mobile phones, Samsung really joined the fray in 2010 when it launched the Galaxy S. That was its first flagship Android phone. Since that time, Samsung and Apple would engage in numerous court battles around the world over various patents and designs, with each side accusing the other of copying the first one. So Apple would say, Samsung copied us in this way. Samsung would say, Apple copied us in this way. And these got really complicated and enormous. We went into some uh, detail of the story in an episode called The Patent Wars, which came out in 2011. But obviously those have continued since then. Samsung also manufactured the first popular consumer tablet running on Android in 2010. That was the Galaxy Tab. And it began to experiment with smart televisions. Those are TVs that pull in content directly from the Internet. You probably are familiar with them. Many of, the, of you may have a smart TV. I, your humble host, am still falling behind the times as my TV is not smart. But I got a lot of smart stuff connected to it. Anyway, in 2012, Samsung actually overtook Nokia, or Nokia if you prefer. It's definitely not Nokia, 
as the number one production company for mobile phones. So this was a big deal for Samsung to overtake the giant Nokia in 2012. The company is a true powerhouse in Korea. It accounts for at almost 15% of the gross domestic product in Korea back in 2012. And in case you're rusty on your economic terms, gross domestic product refers to the total value of goods and services originating from inside a country within one year. So Samsung's business accounted for 15% of all of Korea's GDP in 2012. That is enormous. There's no company in the United States that comes close to that. And the overall company has a an employee base of nearly half a million people. Huge, huge, huge company. Now, they now focus on just a few core businesses, which include mobile technology, electronics, and biopharmaceuticals, among a couple of others. It really is big. It is the third largest company in the world by revenue, and it holds more U.S. patents than any other company. It's also involved in emerging markets, including stuff like virtual reality and wearables. Oh, and there's some uh, notable stories about some of the Samsung products that are out there. You know, some things that suffered a couple of issues. Let's talk about the one that I bet you already know I'm referring to. It is, in fact, the Samsung Galaxy Note 7. This phone became infamous after more than 100 of the handsets were reported to have burst into flames. So what happened? Well, the phones have lithium-ion batteries, and lithium-ion batteries are flammable. That's why you're not supposed to put any in your luggage that you're going to store, unless you're going to check, you know, when you go to an airport. You don't check bags that have lithium-ion batteries in them because of the potential danger for fire. So what can happen is a short circuit can create this this dangerous situation. And a short circuit is kind of what it sounds like. It's when you create a shortcut in a circuit and electrons can flow the can follow the shortcut rather than the path you want them to follow. So the basics of electronics is this. We harness electrons to do what we want them to do. And we do it through making all these different pathways and gates. And as long as we've got that working, the electrons can only follow the gates and go through the gates that are that we allow them to go through, and they don't go through the ones we don't allow them to go through, our electronics work. But if we create a shortcut so that electrons can jump from one pathway to another directly, then we have a problem. Electrons will take that path of least resistance, no pun intended, and as a result, it starts to heat things up. You've got this extra energy being given off in the form of heat. So with batteries... If there's a puncture between the positive and negative electrodes, you can have a direct exchange of electrons and the material will start to heat up. Well, lithium-ion batteries are really flammable, so if they heat up enough, they'll burst into flames. Originally, Samsung tried to address this problem by replacing batteries, but they received reports of several replaced handsets also catching fire, so the company was forced to issue a full recall on the device. Or rather, they did issue a full recall before the force thing became a real necessity. Meanwhile, you started seeing representatives at airports telling travelers that they had to surrender any Galaxy 7 phone before getting on a flight. It was really bad PR for the company, and Samsung is still kind of dealing with that to some extent. Although, it's already starting to slack off a little bit. Because now we've got the Samsung Galaxy S8 coming out. As I record this podcast, 
early reviews are coming out about this new phone. And most of the reviews I've seen have been generally positive. The new phone has a 12 megapixel camera on the back and an 8 megapixel forward facing camera. And Samsung has introduced a personal assistant similar to Siri or Alexa called Bixby, which I think is kind of adorable. And it also, the, the new phone has an iris scanner so that you can use that for authentication. You can go totally James Bond with your phone. That's pretty cool. So the company is still producing these gadgets. It's not like they backed off after the, the problem with the, uh, the Galaxy 7, but that was really bad PR for them. Uh, I should also say that before I get into the next section, which is largely about the behind the scenes at Samsung and the incredibly complex political struggles within the Lee family, that Samsung makes some awesome products. I, I have several Samsung products myself. So while I'm going to talk a lot about some of the the controversies behind Samsung, I don't want that to come across as me slagging the company as a whole. I think that there are a lot of really good Samsung products out there. But it is really fascinating to take a, a look at the family behind the company and their relationships with one another. Because, y'all, this is some Game of Thrones stuff. And I'm not kidding. You should probably grab some popcorn. And I'm going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Let's get back to Lee Byung-chul's legacy. His is a complicated story. I talked about him a lot in the last episode and about his dreams for Samsung and how he wanted his company to be a contributor to Korea's economy and help the country create an industry of its own. But it's not as simple as that or as heroic necessarily. There's some complications to the tale. He was really intent on the success of his company, even as you saw regime changes. He even led Samsung from Japan. He was in Japan when there was the coup d'etat where Park Chung-hee, the military general, took control of the uh, of the Korean government. Um, this was partially because Lee Byung-chul had developed a beneficial relationship with the former leadership of South Korea, you know, that U.S.-backed president that was in charge of South Korea before the coup d'etat. Well, Byung-chul was buddy-buddy with that president and had worked very closely in order to ensure Samsung's success and the growth of the Korean economy. So some would argue that perhaps this was evidence of corruption, that perhaps Samsung had been buttering up the Korean government for preferential treatment. So because there was a coup d'etat where one regime was replacing another, that put Byung-chul in a delicate situation. Also, according to at least some journalist reports, although I have not been able to completely verify this, uh, he was in Japan at the time staying at the house of his Japanese wife. Back in Korea, he had a wife as well, a, a, a different one at the same time. So according to this journalist, he kept two households, one in each nation, and was practically open about it, or at least didn't go to great lengths to hide it. Again, according to the journalist I was reading. 
But uh, he did return to Korea after he was given assurances that he wouldn't be put on trial for corruption charges. And again, to be fair, those charges wouldn't necessarily be accurate. You know, Samsung had flourished under that previous regime, and now you had a new regime in place, and that new regime is trying to wipe out everything from the previous one away, trying to start with a clean slate. So it was a tricky time. You could uh, argue that perhaps there was some evidence that he had colluded with the president, or maybe it was just that, as the story goes, that he was trying very hard to make Samsung a power player in the East Asian economy. Now, General Park Chung-hee gave Samsung some preferential treatment. That really is beyond question. And also a few other Korean companies received this kind of preferential treatment. This was in order to encourage an era of industrialization and modernization, but the government made out pretty well, too, as a result. So from one point of view, you could argue that Samsung had managed to nuzzle up to one leader, then turn around to get buddy-buddy with the next one, in order to maintain its advantage. But from a different point of view, you could say Samsung was able to lead the charge in bringing Korea up to speed with the rest of the industrialized world in a very short span of time. So, again, I'm not trying to demonize Lee Byung-chul, but I'm also not shying away from the fact that this is complicated. Now, in 1967, Lee Byung-chul had to officially resign as chairman of Samsung. This was due to a charge that his second son, Lee Chang-hee, had been smuggling saccharin into Korea. So this scandal breaks out. Lee Byung-chul, as part of this news break of his second son being part of a smuggling operation, announces that he will step down as the head of Samsung Group. And thus, control of the company passed, as is tradition in South Korea, to the eldest son. That was Lee Mang-hee. Now, keep in mind, Samsung Group is a company of companies, and we're talking around 80 companies at this point. But founder Lee Byung-chul still had the power to choose which of his children would officially lead the company after his death, which is common in Korea. Leadership can remain within a family, and Byung-chul watched as his eldest son, son Mang-hee, began to alienate the leadership of the various divisions within Samsung. And in fact, according to some reports, he had even written that within six months, he had plunged that upper echelon of executive leadership into chaos. There were a lot of reports that Mang-hee was short-tempered and ill-suited for leadership. Meanwhile, Byung-chul's second son, Chang-hee, tried to position himself into a power position, despite his previous scandal of smuggling saccharin, by talking to the president of South Korea and revealing that Byung-chul had some slush funds that he was hiding from the government, presumably for bribery and other purposes. And this is the point where we should really just be humming the Game of Thrones theme and probably just keep it up for the rest of the episode. So... Byung-chul made a decision at that point that the ownership of the Samsung Group would not go to either of his first two sons because he felt that they were both plotting against him and would be a bad fit. So instead, he decided that that we should go to the third son. Now, as you can imagine, this did not exactly go over very well within the Lee family. So in 1987, when Byung-chul passed away, the control of his company went to his third son, Lee Kun-hee. 
Now, Samsung itself is what is called a chaebol, which is an institution peculiar to South Korea. Essentially, a chaebol is a large conglomerate of businesses that more often than not fall under a single family's ownership and leadership. And it can get really complicated and be really dense and difficult to suss out who owns what percentage of which company. So you can make a lot of arguments as to whether or not things are on the up and up. Well, Lee Kun-hee became the head of Samsung Group, and individual businesses and divisions fell under the control of some of his siblings. You might remember I mentioned earlier that uh, Samsung Group kind of broke into four major components at this point. Well, those components went to other siblings. One of those was Lee Mang-hee. He ended up taking control of the CJ Group. You remember I mentioned that earlier. Well, later on, much later on, like in 2012, Lee Mang-hee and one of his sisters would go on to sue Lee Kun-hee. And Lee Mang-hee was accusing his younger brother of hiding shares from the company after their father's death. And that lawsuit would last a couple of years, only coming to a close in 2014 when Seoul's high court upheld a verdict that said Lee Kun-hee was innocent of that. Really more, it was more about how the, the, the claim of any, you know, any sort of claim you would have for inheritance would have expired after 10 years, um, had passed from the death of Byung-chul, and Byung-chul died in 1987. So by 2012, it was far too late. But that's not the end of the animosity within the Lee household. It actually gets very complicated. So one of Byung-chul's daughters, still second generation here, uh, her name was Lee Sok-hee, still is, Lee Sok-hee. She married into another family in Korea, another prominent family, the Kyum-sung family. Now, the Kyung-sung family is the head of another chaebol, namely LG. And as LG's electronic business began to flourish, this put a strain on relations between the Kyung-sung and Lee families. So that created some more tension inside the family. Now, getting into the more complications in this web of relationships that were tested after Byung-chul's passing, I need to talk about some of the other folks Lee Chang-hee founded a company called Sehan, which was an electronics and textiles company. They also made one of the first MP3 players called the MP-Man. Uh, Chang-hee would pass away in 1990. I think he was the first of Byung-chul's children to pass away. So he only, you know, he, he lived only three years after his father. Well, Lee In-hee, one of Byung-chul's daughters, another, again, second generation here, became the leader of Samsung's home furnishing businesses. And another one of uh, the daughters, Lee Myung-hee, would end up leading Samsung's retail businesses. Both groups of businesses would split off from Samsung. Uh, the home furnishing business split off in 1991, and the retail business split off in 1997. So Lee In-hee founded the Hansol Group, which is an electronics production company and paper manufacturing business. And according to Hansol, they have no connection with Samsung Group at all, that there's no ownership connection between the two. Lee Myung-hee would go on to found the uh, Shinsegae Group. That was the department store franchise in South Korea. 
And both of them are very powerful leaders in Korea's ec- uh, economy. Then you had CJ Child Jadang, which is a business that sells all sorts of stuff, including food and biopharmaceuticals. Uh, Lee Mang-hee, the eldest of Byung-chul's sons, led this company and then passed it on to his son, Lee Jae-hyun. So Lee Jae-hyun is third generation. He's a grandson of Byung-chul. Lee Jae-hyun led CJ Child Jadang until 2014, and then he was convicted of charges of theft and embezzlement and sentenced to four years in prison. He would not be the only Lee to be accused of and convicted for charges such as these. In 1996, in fact, Lee Kun-hee, he's the guy, again, the third son of the founder who had taken over control of Samsung Group, he was accused of and convicted for charges of paying bribes to Chun Du-hwan. Uh, that was the general who took over after uh, Park Chung-hee's assassination. So Chun Du-hwan was a president of Korea, South Korea, and uh, Lee Kun-hee was convicted of charges of bribing the government. Uh, he also was accused of bribing the successor to Chun Du-hwan, who was Ro Tai-woo. So 1996 was a bad year for Lee Kun-hee. He had these charges of bribery for two of South Korea's recent presidents. But in 1997, the then-president of South Korea, Kim Yong-sam, this was the next successor, granted Kun-hee a pardon. So Kunhi gets a presidential pardon in 1997 after being accused of bribing the two previous presidents. By the way, at this point, Korea had entered into what is called the Sixth Republic, which is what it currently is in. Korea is in the Sixth Republic. The uh, Third and Fourth Republic were Park Chung-hee's um, presidential administrations, I guess you could call it. And then you had the fifth one with... Uh, Duhuan and Tai Wu. All right, so Kim Yong Sam also pursued, pursued charges of corruption and treason against his predecessors, Duhuan and Tai Wu. So the, the president who granted the pardon to Samsung's Kun Hee, president of South Korea, also went after the two previous presidents of South Korea, but then eventually, after having them both convicted, would grant them both a pardon. So Samsung's politics are confusing, but so are Korea's, right? Because you had a a current standing president accuse and convict two former presidents of corruption charges and then grant them pardons. Complicated stuff. All right, so Samsung's Kun-hee gets his pardon in 1997 for those bribery charges, and he goes back to managing Samsung. He has a son, and he had three daughters, all of whom attended school in the United States. His son, Lee Jae-yong, also known in the West as J.Y. Lee, assumed control of 14 internet venture companies, but they went out of business within a year, so that didn't exactly instill a lot of, of enthusiasm because, again, the way Samsung operates, the way Korea businesses operate, especially in this old family tradition, Jay Lee stands to inherit Samsung. His father, Kun Hee, is the, is the current leader and would traditionally pass it down to his eldest son. Well, Jay Lee is the only son of Kun Hee. 
Kunhee's daughter Lee Yun Hyung is the subject of a really tragic story. And you may have heard about this because it was big news when it happened. When she was 26 years old, the heiress to the Samsung fortune hanged herself in a New York apartment building. Her death was international news. She was the daughter of one of Korea's wealthiest men. And in Korea, her death was originally reported as the result of a car accident. She had an avid interest in race cars, and people knew that about her. But according to some people close to her, she was also prone to bouts of loneliness and depression, possibly because she had hoped to marry a man she had fallen in love with back in Korea, but she had been told by her parents that the man was not of the right stature for her to marry, and they forbade her from marrying him. Now, the true story that led to her suicide is probably not fully known, and I'm sure is far more complicated than that simple answer, but it was a shocking and tragic tale. Uh, that made world headlines. In 2008, Lee Kun-hee was accused of and convicted for tax evasion. So 10 years after, a little bit more than 10 years after his last conviction, he gets accused and convicted for another set of crimes. The charges said he failed to pay $45 million in taxes, and he was hit with a fine that was nearly $90 million. As a result of the scandal, he was forced to resign as chairman of Samsung, that put his son Jay Lee's claim in danger, actually, because since he had to step down, there was the question of whether or not he would be able to pass along the ownership of the company to his son. But then in 2009, he received another presidential pardon, forgiving him for his conviction of tax evasion. And in 2010, he reassumed leadership of Samsung Electronics. All right, let's get back to CJ Group, which, again, spun off from Samsung in the early 1990s. Now, this was the part of the company that dealt with food and biopharmaceuticals and later got into the entertainment business, forming subsidiaries like CJ Media, CJ Entertainment, and CJ Internet. Lee Mang-hee, remember, he was the eldest son of the founder of Samsung. He had a son, uh, Lee Jae-hyun, you remember I mentioned him earlier, who became the head of CJ Group in 2002. So this is a Samsung founder's grandson. Lee Jae-hyun would be grandson to Byung-chul, the founder of Samsung. Anyway, in 2013, Lee Jae-hyun was arrested on charges of tax evasion and embezzlement. So you might be sensing a theme here. He would also eventually receive a pardon from the president in 2016. Uh, as for Mang Hee, the eldest son, he passed away in 2015, the second of uh, Byung-chul's children to pass away. Now, of course, this is not where the story ends. You have probably heard about a scandal that is sweeping South Korea that hit worldwide news in 2016. It is often referred to as the Choi Soon-sil scandal. Samsung is caught up in that as well as lots of other companies and entities. So what is the scandal all about? Who oh boy, hope you still got some popcorn. Here we go. Well, as you've no doubt gathered from this and the previous podcast, Korea's government has had a real rocky time since World War II and even before that, with several leaders doing their best to maintain a position of power beyond what were supposed to be legally binding protections for the Korean people. 
Many Korean leaders have been involved in various scandals that revolve around bribery and corruption. And honestly, I think it's impossible to really lay blame here because the nation of Korea has been the subject of so much interference and international intrigue. But this particular scandal really stands out. Choi Soon-sil is the name of a woman. She was the daughter of a man named Choi Tae-min. Tae-min was the head of a sect of South Korean Christians. He was formerly a Buddhist and converted to Roman Catholicism. Uh, and some people call his group a cult. Uh, I do not know enough about it to give it a term, but he certainly led a sect of religious followers in South Korea. He became friends with and a mentor to a woman named Park gyun Hai. Um, and I know I'm butchering her name, but she she was the daughter of Park Chung-hee, the military general who became the dictator of South Korea for many years, for the third and fourth republics of Korea. Now, Park Gyun-hee was elected to the position of president in 2013, and she was friends with Choi Soon-sil. Now, Tai Min had passed away in the 90s, but his daughter Sun Sil remained very close to Gyun Hee. In 2016, it became public knowledge that there were a string of accusations and arrests that were flooding the South Korean government, many of them targeting the people around the president herself. And the story unfolded that Sun Sil had been using her considerable influence over the president to create favorable deals for herself and her family and her friends, and that many government officials have been accepting numerous large bribes from lots of businesses, including businesses related to Samsung. This scandal has rocked South Korea. The president has stepped down. She was impeached. Uh, she stepped down from the role of president. The prime minister took over. But uh, as for Samsung, this led authorities to go investigate Jay Lee, whom I hope you'll remember is Kun Hee's son and therefore a grandson of the founder Byung Chol. So Jay Lee was serving as vice chairman for Samsung Electronics. He's essentially the heir apparent to Samsung. He was accused of bribery, among other things, and was arrested in January 2017. The accusations include one that says that he made sizable contributions to the tune of about $35 million to two nonprofits that Choi Soon-sil allegedly controls. Now, this story is still unfolding at this time of the recording, and so the future of Samsung leadership remains an open question. It could turn out that it has merit and that uh, Jay Lee will be convicted of these charges. It could turn out that we see yet another presidential pardon come out and uh absolve him of these charges. Who knows? One possible successor to the Samsung empire could be Kunhee's daughter, Lee Bujin. She is sometimes referred to as Little Kunhee by the Korean public. She's the president of Hotel Shila and co-president of Samsung Everland, which is a company that oversees Korea's oldest amusement park under the umbrella of Child Industries. Now, if you listen to part one of the Samsung story, you might remember I mentioned Child Industries in that episode. It started off as a very humble business. It was a woolen mill back when Samsung first was diversifying in the mid-20th century. Well, Lee Bujin's sister, Lee Seo-hyun, is the other co-president 
of Child Industries. So the two sisters sit at the top of that company. There was also a recent story where, in an effort to streamline things, there was a plan to have Child Industries acquire Samsung CNT. So that's not the overall Samsung company. It's the construction and transportation company that's was part of Samsung. But Paul Singer, who is an investor uh, with more than 7% ownership of stock in Samsung CNT, blocked that plan. He led a charge to block it, saying that he felt that the $9.4 billion stock offer was undervaluing Samsung CNT and that shareholders wouldn't be paid a fair amount for their, their ownership. Um, that caused some headaches over on the Samsung side for the leadership, for the Lee family, I suppose I should say. Shareholders have pressured Samsung, trying to get them to change to a more traditional holding structure, you know, like with a board of directors and that sort of thing. Many other chaebols in Korea have given up the ghost. They have disappeared. They got broken up by the government and dispersed and turned into more traditional Western-style corporations. But Samsung's Lee family has not followed suit, and they have been putting up resistance to this and have said that it's completely unnecessary and, in fact, would end up causing more harm than good. That's their claim. So you could say they are disinclined to acquiesce to such pressures. The company itself is so vast and complicated that it's hard to wrap your mind around the whole thing. And seriously, this could be an amazing documentary following the story of Samsung's ruling family as they gain prestige and power, occasionally turning on one another in the process. I really do think it's like, like Game of Thrones mixed with Sopranos, mixed with a few other big stories about enormous sprawling families and their control of important interests not saying that it's necessarily all self-serving or dark or anything like that but there's definitely a lot of politics going on behind the scenes fascinating stuff and i want to learn more and maybe in the future i will do another episode to kind of shed more light onto this company but i felt like a two-parter was the best approach in this case because the more i looked into this the more i realized that I just, I lack the cultural knowledge to dive into it even further. I would have to study this for a couple of weeks to really get my head around it. So maybe I will revisit it in the future, but I think it's a pretty fascinating story. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, or maybe you've got an idea for someone who should be a guest on our show, you should go and let me know via email. The address for this podcast is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. Normally, I would be streaming live on twitch.tv slash techstuff, but as I'm recording this right now, our office is suffering some internet connectivity issues. So I'm just recording an episode. No one's getting to watch this amazing performance I'm giving over here, which is a pity. But usually you can watch me record the show live on Wednesdays and Fridays. Just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff and you can find the schedule there. And I will talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>